I didn't challenge uh, sexism at every turn. And frankly, it helped me get where I am. From Politico, this is Women Rule, where we bring you real talk with women bosses. I'm Anna Palmer, senior Washington correspondent and co-author of the Politico Playbook. And now I feel like it's my turn, baby. I better be challenging it at every, at every point I possibly can. Today, we're talking to two women at the forefront of the modern-day labor movement, Liz Schuler and Mary Kay Henry. Hi, I'm Liz Schuler. I'm the secretary treasurer of the National AFL-CIO, which is an umbrella group of 55 different unions. I'm Mary Kay Henry, the international president of the Service Employees International Union. It's two million members. Liz and Mary Kay grew up around organized labor. Mary Kay as a child in Detroit, Michigan, and Liz as part of a union family in Oregon. The two rose up through the ranks as organizers to head up two of the largest labor unions in the country. In our interview, we talked to them about their backgrounds, the challenges they've faced in a field that most people still think of as white and male-dominated, and how they rose to the top. I wouldn't be the female president of SEIU if I had been kicking and screaming on every form of oppression on my way up. Because they've been in this business so long, I'm a dinosaur in the U.S. economy. Liz and Mary Kay were perfectly positioned to talk about how the power of unions have changed over the years. We talked about the recent Supreme Court cases that have dealt blows to unions. From the Supreme Court today, a 5-4 decision, the justices ruling against public sector unions. We discussed Brett Kavanaugh's nomination to the court. The battle could shape the court for decades. And we also talked about what's giving labor unions hope in a time where their future seems a little uncertain. Yes, people want to write the labor movement's obituary. But with the rise in collective action that we've been seeing, I think it's signaling something. Stay tuned for our conversation with Liz Schuler and Mary Kay Henry. On the podcast, we'll be bringing you real talk with women bosses, asking, how did you make it? What advice would you give a woman looking to lead? If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to Women Rule on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us and leave a review. And please share our episodes on social media and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at apalmerdc. Women Rule is produced by Politico in partnership with our founding partners, Google and the Tory Burch Foundation. And now, our interview with Liz Schuler and Mary Kay Henry. Liz, Mary Kay, thank you so much for joining us today on the Women Rule podcast. Well, you are two of the top women leading the way in the labor movement. But I think a lot of people have this idea of unions that a majority of them are made up of white men working in manufacturing jobs. That's something I'm sure has come up before. Uh, And that's certainly the case for a lot of unions. But just for context, uh, we looked up some of the numbers. SEIU's members, just over half of them are women. And for the AFL-CIO, about 55% of your members are women. Talk to me generally about the workers you represent and the role that women are playing now in the labor movement. You know, we represent uh, working women across the service and care sector, women who are uh, performing a very important role with elders and people with disability in their homes uh, called home care providers. These are jobs that have been poverty wage jobs excluded from labor law since the beginning of time. And the union has made it possible for these women to have uh, family uh, wage jobs that has uh, benefits and time off. And we just won the right for these women to have retirement. 
uh, for the first time in their lives. And so that's one example Mm -hmm. of the kind of women we represent. Great. And Liz? So the FLCIO, as I mentioned, um, we're 12 and a half million working men and women across the country. Uh, you had mentioned that we are a half women. Uh, essentially, the numbers say actually in about seven years that the labor movement will be half women. Um, we, every sector of the economy that you can think of, from the professional sector, teachers and nurses to uh, women in the trades who are um, you know, building the, this country, you name it. Um, the labor movements there and women play a really important role in our movement. I want to talk a little bit more about your backgrounds, how you both came up in your careers and even before that a little bit. Um, Mary Kay, let's start with you. You, You're from Detroit. You grew up in a big Catholic family, the oldest of nine children. You probably saw in Motor City the impact unions had on life there. What was it that got you interested in joining the organized labor movement? Um, I was at MSU, and I was working for a uh, student activist organization called the Public Interest Research Group. And when we were lobbying for women's reproductive health in the state capitol in Lansing, I met these incredible women from the United Auto Workers. And one of them, Olga Madar, uh, taught me the power of women coming together in an organization and being able to fight for reproductive protections on the assembly line uh, in ways that kind of blew open my mind about thinking the difference that unions made in expanding women's leadership. And were you always, I mean, that's a very early age to be politically active. Were you always, did that kind of see that kernel, was that planted in college? Was it growing up in your family? I would say that it was more my mom and dad and the idea that collective action made things go better. Because as the oldest girl in that family of 10, I uh, had to organize my brothers and sisters a lot. And then my Catholic uh, upbringing taught me that um, we were our brothers and sisters' keeper and that I was responsible for thinking about not just myself and how I was going to do well, but how was I going to make the world a place where everybody um, did better. So I would say that my um, faith activated me politically. And pretty much all of your career has been with the SEIU since right after you graduated. I'm a dinosaur in the U.S. economy. <laughs> That's what I tell all of my nieces and nephews. Nobody in their generation is ever going to work for the same employer for 36 years as I have. But I'm blessed in that regard, I think. Right. So, so right after you graduated college in 1979, you start off as an organizer. You're doing that work in California for a while. And then you eventually become their chief healthcare strategist. And then in 2010, you became the first woman elected to lead the SEIU. After 90 years with a majority female organization, every man and woman in our union jumped for joy. I had men come up to me and ask me to sign their daughter's picture because they wanted their daughter to believe that anything was possible for them, too. Were there moments, I mean, you talked about this kind of 30-plus year career where you wanted to do something different, and or what kept you coming back to the SAIU and thinking this was the place where you were going to keep your career going? I would say it's the thousands of women and um, men, but primarily women and primarily women of color, whose lives um, 
I've witnessed be transformed through their leadership in the union. Well, Liz, let's talk about your uh, your route. I believe it's a little bit more circuitous. You actually graduated from the University of Oregon with a degree in journalism, uh, but you also grew up surrounded by organized labor. Your dad was a union member. He worked at Portland General Electric, and your mother also worked for the company. Why didn't you stick with journalism? What drew you to unions? Well, it's funny. When I was growing up, the one thing I wanted to be was a judge. From age six, I decided that. and um, I one, never knew that. <laughs> right. All this time. I know. And then when I went to college, I thought journalism would be an excellent foundation for uh, studying the law. But um, there was, um, at that time, you had to assume probably, I don't know, $50,000, $70,000 in debt to put yourself through law school. Um, and when I studied journalism, I thought it would be a good foundation for pretty much anything, right? Um, so when I came out of college, I had, the economy was very much like it is now. Um, I had what they called the McJob uh, mm-hmm. syndrome, where I had a lot of part-time jobs to make it. And um, one of those was working for um, a, a firm that was helping um, do PR for, for the labor movement. And so I was kind of, you know, thinking, hmm, what is this all about? And I worked at um, the also the uh, Portland General Electric, also uh, the same utility that my dad worked at and my mom worked at also um, through summers in college. So all of that came together when the clerical workers decided to try to organize at PGE. And I was thinking, I know these women, you know, I want to be a part of this. And um, the local union needed organizers. And it was an all-male local. And so they said, hey, we could use somebody like you. And that was kind of how my activism was born. And um, my mom was one of the lead organizers. And so she and I did house calls together. And uh, she was called into the CEO's office at one time to have a one-on-one meeting. So when we talk about intimidation during an organizing campaign, you can imagine. Uh, So that campaign ultimately failed, unfortunately, because of the fear that these women had. Um, And the local decided to hire me as a result. And so that was kind of when my path started with the labor movement. So talk a little bit about being kind of the only woman in the room. I'm sure it was nice that your, your mom was there as well. So you had kind of support from the community that you knew really well. But being the first in a place like that can sometimes be, I guess, very lonely can be hard. They aren't maybe used to, you know, working with women. What was that like? Yeah, and since the organizing for clerical workers failed, that campaign failed, um, I was actually, yeah, the only woman on staff at the local, um, and we didn't have many women members. And yes, you did find yourself kind of in a lonely place um, most most often. But I, I think it really did bring um, I, I could say a different perspective often to the conversations. If there was um, strategy discussions, um, you know, obviously people talk about women's leadership style being very different, more collaborative, more um, more listening takes place, and you can actually sometimes de-escalate situations when there's a lot of testosterone in a room. Um, so I did find myself often uh, playing that role. So how did you eventually come to the AFL-CIO? I worked my way up through the Electrical Workers Union. So from my local union, 125 in Portland, Oregon, um, I worked some campaigns. um, And then the International Union in D.C. asked if I'd want to come work um, in their political department. And so... Um, interestingly, when I came to D.C., uh, was right around the time Enron purchased my um, the local union that I came from, that electric utility was purchased by Enron. Maybe a lot of people don't even know Enron anymore, but 
Um, but the friends and family that uh, ended up losing most of their pensions in the bankruptcy were family friends of mine. And so I happened to be in Washington at the right time because I could bring their voices to the halls of Congress and I could, you know, help folks testify before congressional panels about what happened. And so that was a real trans- transformative moment for me. So you've talked a lot about kind of both of your pass forward through unions. Have have you kind of tried to champion more women in your unions, in leadership roles? How has that gone? Has it been, you know, kind of bumpy at times where, you know, maybe not everybody was on board for the kind of changes that leaders like you might be looking for? I think what happens is when a woman takes power in the traditional sense, we're still operating in a system that um, – we have to be very conscious. Like, I'm very conscious of what am I doing as the female president of SEIU to undermine the structure of male domination in my own organization? Because just because a woman takes charge doesn't disrupt that system. And I've been very conscious of that. I think probably more so as president because you you have more um, positional power uh, than at any other time in my uh, coming up. But I think our very presence and how we lead um, creates a space for women to um, engage more. I didn't challenge uh, sexism at every turn. And frankly, it helped me get where I am. And now I feel like it's my turn, baby. I better be challenging <laughs> it at every at every point I possibly can. But I wouldn't be the female president of SEIU if I had been kicking and screaming on every form of oppression on my way up. And I, we got to figure out how to use the moment of more women leading and more people of color leading to shake things up and allow people to kick and scream. Uh, that's kind of how I think about the way it will Uh, get to the transformation that Liz just talked about. So in terms of um, more women leaders and folks coming up behind us, um, I've been thinking a lot about that because often we emulate the mentors or the leaders that we sort of study under, right? And I I see it in our next generation. Um, We have what we call Next Up is our Young Worker Program. And Um, A lot of the young men, for example, who are studying under male leaders tend to start to amorph into that leadership style if you're not kind of raising awareness and, and as Mary Kay said, you know, fighting these systems and these deep cultural um, kind of traditions that we've had. And um, so I think I've focused a lot of attention and energy around um, the next generation of leadership. How do we cast our net? As, and open our doors as wide as ever, um, and especially for young women. Yeah, we've talked so much on this podcast uh, for the past year about women needing to be asked yes, right, and, yes. and, and to run when you think about candidates. And oftentimes it's at least three times before right. they'll even seriously consider it. Whereas, you know, to your point, most men course I should run. I'm, I'm fully qualified, even though, you know, they on paper. Oh, yeah, exactly. On paper, they're the same. Tell me uh, a little bit about some of the women union members who are candidates uh, that you guys are following that our listeners should be looking at uh, in some of the races uh, this fall. Sure. Well, I think, you know, the AFL-CIO has really prioritized um, union members being 
primed and ready to go to take on this moment because it really is, um, there's something in the air. People are ready to rise up and there's a moment of collective action unlike we've seen. And I think we saw it since the Women's March, obviously. Um, Now we're seeing it with workers. Um, We're kind of calling it, you know, the year of the worker because um, (laughs) teachers are rising up and striking. Um, You know, we've had unprecedented (laughs) organizing wins. Um, We just had a big um, JetBlue uh, Airlines just organized a union. Um, I think in one week in April, 10,000 workers organized. And so um, how do we capitalize on that? And how do we uh, make the change that we need uh, with policies in our economy? Well, it's to elect union members to office. Uh, They're the perfect candidates because they have a, a lived experience that they can bring to the table. And so especially um, women, we're seeing in bigger numbers than ever before um, running for all levels of government. And I think um, obviously the state legislative level on up to Congress and beyond is the goal. Um, and we have a whole host of women. We're watching um, Jackie Rosen, who is, um, as you know, a representative in the Congress and Dem- Democratic nominee for the U.S. Senate in Nevada a former member of the Culinary Workers Union um, in Las Vegas, Unite Here. Um, Very exciting. Uh, Carolyn Long worked her way through college with a UFCW grocery job, and now she's a political scientist running for Congress in Washington State. Um, Yavanna Cancela, who's the former political director of the Culinary Workers, also uh, was appointed to the Nevada State Senate and is now running for a full term. Julie Blaha in uh, Minnesota, secretary treasurer of the Minnesota AFL-CIO, running for state auditor. I, and I don't know, Anna and Liz, if this is true uh, with for your experience. For us, it's beyond asking. I really think that... Um, in our union and the, some of the women that I know that Liz just, it's about pushing. Um, it's beyond, because money has so infiltrated our uh, candidate and electoral system, um, most working women believe they have no capacity to raise the kind of resource that they need in order to even get in the game. So our experience is that it requires year after year We invest a half a million dollars a year just to encourage, but mostly push, members who might be thinking about it um, into the game. And then the ask, ask, ask happens um, after we push, because then it takes those three asks, because we work with Emily's List, we work with Latino Votes, we work with Black Pack to think about how to encourage people. But all of those women, primarily, I think were pushed it wasn't like they stuck their hands up after being asked three times. And women are often the trusted source in the workplace. Yeah. And are um, leaders um, in their union before they run for public office. So it's a great training ground. You know, I was just in Missouri earlier last week, and I saw women leading in in setting up phone banks and not just knocking on doors, but leading canvases. And so those are, I think, leadership experiences that actually lend themselves to um, continuing to run. So let's bring the conversation back to Washington. And I, I want to talk about Missouri in a little bit. But there have been a couple setbacks dealt by the Supreme Court this summer that have affected organized labor. 
you were talking about kind of the dysfunction of the labor laws right now. The Supreme Court's decision on Janus versus AFSCME is a bit of a financial blow to public sector unions. And it basically says that those unions can't require non-members to pay dues, that doing so violates their First Amendment rights. Give us your perspective on this and why was this so effective, you know, so so important for unions? And I just want you to think about how it's a blow to the value of work. It's it's much less about a financial blow to our institutions and much more about a 40-year attack on whether work pays in this economy. And for me, Janice and then a Medicaid rule that was issued the day after by HHS that would defund our home care union are two clear examples this sun- summer of the value the right places on worker organization because they are doubling down on dismantling it. And dismantling worker organization means that more jobs are paid poverty wages. So do you, you don't think it's going to be as, as big of a financial blow as a lot of people have projected? Well, we have there. Yes, there is a financial blow. The thing I want you to uh, take away from this conversation is that's a sort of third level concern for the American labor movement. The American labor movement is in the fight of our lives to raise wages for everybody in this country and to create good jobs in this economy. And Our fight isn't just to protect and defend our current members. Our fight is to use the power of the 16 million workers that still have access to collective bargaining to rewrite the rules and create a system where wages can be raised for everybody in this country. What's what's your sense in terms of Brett Kavanaugh, SCOTUS? I mean, how important right now you're already seeing the impact of what, what the makeup of the court is on your cases, several of them. I mean, is this is that kind of a do or die moment for the unions? How much are you guys going to get involved in trying to push back against Brett Kavanaugh, Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court? We are pushing back. We've already come out on record opposing the nomination um, for a whole host of reasons. But I think we're a part of a broader coalition, as Mary Kay alluded to, that we're working with allies and, and partner organizations to say enough is enough, right? We cannot let this court continue to uh, swing to the extreme um, right. And it's not what America, it's out of a step with what America believes, I think. And um, we're seeing this moment of collective action, as I said earlier, where people are are starting to rise up. And the best way to do that is collectively, um, as Mary Kay said. And so we're going to continue to just organize workers, um, focus on the grassroots, focus on our communities. And um, we think that, you know, we can put up a fight like you've never seen, because that's what we do best in the labor movement. Yeah, we intend to make it the same thing as repealing health care. We are going to organize the three votes that are required to block this nomination. It's wrong for the country. We've gone up on the phones in the all over the country to make every senator crystal clear that this is an unacceptable nomination from the president. We've added organizers collectively as a labor movement with our partners in Alaska, Nevada, and Maine. Um, there's a bus tour starting about protecting Roe. But it's about protecting everything that we value uh, as a, a people in this uh, country. And I'm incredibly inspired by the amount of resistance that has been uh, 
mounted and the degree to which the Democratic Senate is holding clear on needing to see every document in position, trying to make it clear that it's not right that while um, the Mueller investigation is going on, that we have this vote, that we should wait until after the midterm. I think that there's lots of arguments for why the Kavanaugh appointment shouldn't be approved on its merits and shouldn't be approved based on process. One thing I wanted to get to before we have to wrap up here in a few minutes is there's obviously been a national conversation around sexual harassment and assault in the workplace. Talk to me a little bit about what unions are doing when it comes to protecting their members in these kinds of environments. As we've seen from various news reports over the past year, the harassment and assault that women face in places like the service industry, in union organized industries, is happening. And it's unfortunately really common, to me, shockingly commonplace. Yes, uh, I would say, you know, we're all women workers. And I think um, it's very common. Most women have dealt with Uh, some form of sexual harassment throughout their careers. And the AFL-CIO takes it incredibly seriously. And we've been actually out fighting against sexual harassment in the workplace, sexual assault in the workplace, uh, since our inception, because through collective bargaining, that's where you'll find language in your contracts for a process and how to remedy when things go wrong, Uh, how to have some form of enforcement, right, if the bosses aren't actually um, coming to your to your assistance. Um, and so the AFL-CIO, both as an institution and how we run our own organization, as well as um, how we're leading in the workplace uh, through our individual union affiliates, um, has been on you know record opposing this issue for forever. Um, but I think the, the key here is um, cultural change. And uh, this is a moment where women are starting to feel safer coming forward because we're all standing up together. And collective action, as I said, is the key. Before we run out of time, I want to talk about you were in Missouri, the recent defeat of Missouri's right to work law, which would have banned compulsory union fees. For those that don't know what that means, even if workers aren't part of a private sector union, they often pay some dues which cover the non-political actions unions take on their behalf, like collective bargaining. So what Explain to me what does that vote in Missouri signal to organized labor? The vote in Missouri was nothing short of inspiring. I left Missouri. I was there several times over the last few months. Um, I left there. First of all, the labor movement was more unified than I'd ever seen it. It was laser focused on defeating the initiative. Uh, So it brought people together in a way that I haven't seen in a long time. Um, And secondly, the way the community rallied around the labor movement, because they realized that if right to work were to pass in Missouri, wages would go down for everyone. And so to see um, folks in the small business community responding, um, you know, working people that, you know, don't have a union know that this is going to impact them, too. And so that's why I think you saw the huge number, uh, the big defeat, uh, because everyone knew exactly what was going to happen in that state. Wages would go down. Safety protections would go down. um, Opportunities and and job growth uh, would be sacrificed. And the next day, the Freedom Foundation issued a press release saying, no worries, we're going to go into the state legislature and repass this law. So the struggle for power over the question of whether workers have the right to join together isn't over in one election. I think Liz and I see the inspiration as a way to keep 
pulling people together and be ready to keep fighting defensively while we throw the doors of our movement open and welcome more workers in and expand the power of working people to be able to change not just our own lives, but the lives of our family, friends, and neighbors. Yeah, I want to end on that, actually. And I've covered, I covered downtown and money and politics for a really long time. And there's been a lot of people proclaiming over the last 15 years, you know, the end of the, the labor movement, it's diminishing power. Uh, I want you to look into like your own crystal ball, right? You know, if you look at the future of the organized labor with the recent Supreme Court decisions, with the recent right to work pushes by Republicans and state legislatures, do you see a diminishing power of unions? And what are you guys actively trying to do to make sure that doesn't happen? I think we're at a moment, um, yes, people want to write the labor movement's obituary. But with the rise in collective action that we've been seeing, I think it's signaling something, that people want to come together, they want to fight back. Unions are the best way to do that. Now, as we see the future of work changing and the we don't even know what jobs are going to look like in even five to ten years, we definitely see a need for a way for workers to come together and have a stronger voice. Uh, right now, unions, as I said, are the best way to do that. But could that take on some new form? Perhaps. Uh, but I think the bottom line is, is that we make change when we speak up together. And so when we see the future of work um, with technology and how it's advancing, a lot of people say robots are going to take all of our jobs. Uh, I, I don't think so. I think the labor movement's needed now more than ever. And I think it will. It's an opportunity for, for collective action and collective voice to grow. And I think there are amazing uh, signals at the city and state level of what's possible for the future. So the industrial crisis of the last century was born out of the Great Depression. The year, the years following that saw the biggest growth in the labor movement uh, of the last century. And I believe what Liz just said, this the conditions of the moment where people have had it and are willing to join together and walk out uh, in West Virginia and walk out in Arizona or the high school students that create this amazing uprising uh, across the country signals that people believe that collective action is a way to change things in addition to going to vote. Um, and so I think that this moment is going to birth the next uh, 21st century labor movement. All right. Well, Liz and Mary Kay, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you so much, Anna. Women Rule is produced by Rena Flores. Dave Shaw is our executive producer, and our booker is Jessica Andrews. If you're a fan of the show and you listen on Apple Podcasts, do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. And of course, hit that subscribe button. And thanks for listening.